Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 221 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you. Uh, I've been on the road this fall on Orange Tour and some other events, and I got to tell you, it's been so exciting just to talk to you. And I wanted to start off by just saying thank you. So many of you tell me, man, you know, this episode really impacted me. And you know, the reason the podcast is growing, the reason that we're able to help so many leaders and serve so many people is because you're sharing it. And I just wanted to acknowledge that. I wanted to say thank you for that. Uh, Thank you for annoying your team by saying you've got to listen to this episode. Thanks for posting it to social, uh, Instagram, to your stories, to, well, everywhere you post it online. And even, you know, texting or emailing a friend a link. I do that all the time with episodes of podcasts I'm listening to that uh, interest me. And you guys are doing that. And I just wanted to acknowledge that and say thank you. We had the best month ever in September. And uh, that's because of you guys. So I love doing this with you. I love partnering with you. And today you're not going to be disappointed because Max Lucado is on. And I'd never really met Max prior to this interview, but I mean, so much respect for what he's done. Uh, A great legacy of leadership at his church. And we're going to talk about his transitioning into a new role pretty much as we were recording this episode. But you know what? Get this. He's written 120 books. Yeah, I've written four. So he's written 120, so much respect. We get into his writing, we get into his leadership, we get into his personal rhythms. I think you're going to love it. I want to talk to you today about two things. Number one, healthcare costs getting out of control for your church. I mean, like payroll costs and for you as an employee. And secondly, giving, like how are you going to maximize giving at your church? So uh, one of the problems I think with um, healthcare today is that it's just so expensive. It's expensive for churches, it's expensive for employees, and a lot of people are struggling with it. So the question is, what do you do? How do you reconcile your budget and taking care of your staff? Line items like healthcare insurance are constantly on the rise, but it can be really difficult. And you know, you get stuck as a church leader going, okay, I'm just gonna give my staff a bad plan that I know is bad, but it's the only thing we can afford. Is there another option? And the answer is yes. So Remodel Health is a brand new organization, a startup that is bringing healthcare into the 21st century. They're trusted partners of Brotherhood Mutual and MediShare, and their benefits platform is designed for faith-based organizations, and they offer an innovative and affordable healthcare insurance for both the employer and the staff. So here's what happens. If you go with Remodel Health, They allow the staff to choose from dozens of different benefit plans and pick the one that meets their needs. I mean, historically, what's happened is, you know, you just end up going, okay, well, this is our healthcare plan, take it or leave it. There's another option. And they want your employees to get ahead too. In fact, I sat down with Justin Clements. He's the co-founder and CEO of Remodel Health. And I said, okay, so the doctor gives you a prescription and you think, well, This drug is really expensive. I don't have any options. Do I? Here's what Justin had to say. When the doctor gives you a prescription, the first thing you should ask is, hey, thanks a lot. Um, Is is this a generic or is there a generic form of this drug that you think is okay for me to take? 
80% of the drugs on the market have a generic counterpart. Generic means that it's been on the market long enough for the patent to wear off. I would almost argue that generic means that it's time-tested and it's better. There's no reason to pay for a brand name drug nine times out of 10. So if you wanna save money on healthcare as an employer and give your employees better benefits, go to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. They save their clients, churches, faith-based organizations, an average of 34% annually on healthcare costs and the benefits tend to be better for the employees. So imagine what could be done if you found out how you could reinvest those savings into your mission. Go to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry to find out more. You'll get a free quote and a buying guide as well. Now, talk about digital giving. You know what blows my mind? This just completely blows my mind. I talk to so many church leaders and it's like, yeah, you know, maybe we get 30%, 50% of our giving through digital giving. Guys, it's 2018. I was at a church recently and I wanted to give and like there weren't easy digital options and that stinks. And what's happening is people who want to give can't give. And then you as a church are not really funding your mission. So Pushpay knows that and they are an industry leader, experts at technology, just like you guys are the experts at ministry. They know that the average American spends four hours a day on their cell phone and your church is simply missing out if you're not thinking about a mobile strategy to reach members online on their phones. So Pushpay has the largest customer base in the entire industry. They work with more than 7,000 churches. Last year, they facilitated $3 billion in contributions. So many organizations trust Pushpay. Why don't you head on over and visit pushpay.com to learn more and see what everyone is talking about. They'll actually put you in touch with an expert and tell them I sent you. Tell them Carrie sent you. Well, listen, I'm very excited to jump into my conversation today with Max Lucado, best-selling author, pastor. And I think you're going to learn so much about how he has structured his life and leadership to accomplish, well, just so much. Here's my conversation with Max Lucado. Well, Max, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I want to say thank you so much. You've had an incredible legacy over uh, 40 years of ministry. And uh, you've given hope to a lot of people. (laughs) The website says, I guess it's 40 trade publications, but 120 books. This would be 121. That's that's insane. It's easy to do if you just focus on quantity and don't worry about quality. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, I've written four. I mean, I'm I'm fractions of what you've done. But congratulations, uh, though. Four is no small thing. Well, I appreciate that. It's a great accomplishment. What got you interested in writing? Yeah, well, let's start there. What what got you interested in writing? Because, I mean, you lead a very large church, and you have kids, and it's a busy time. Yeah. Well, um, I've always loved writing. I really have. I I can recall uh, back in my high school days uh, being fortunate enough to have an English teacher my senior year in high school who was writing a book. Now, uh, Carrie, I grew up in West Texas, which lives up to every possible stereotype of West Texas. It's rodeo, it's right. oil, and it's football. It really is. I mean, And you're the book kid. Yeah, and I, and I well, let me, let me say just a little bit. I, I, I was kind of a, a rodeo and, and football guy myself, uh, 
but I like books. Yeah. And so I was, I was a bit of a hybrid, you know, I wore the boots and I played on the football team, but at the same time I hung out in the library. So I didn't quite know who I, who I was. And, right. and so I, but I say all that to say that I had this, this high school uh, English teacher who was writing a book, which is a wonderful thing. And it was a, curiously, it was a fiction book on rodeo clowns, you know, the clowns that yeah. helped the bull riders. Totally. And so he, he knew I liked books. And so he would take me to rodeos and, and I uh, watched him interview rodeo clowns. And, uh, and I, uh, he would read me the chapter as he wrote it, each, each chap, news chapter he wrote. I thought that was the greatest thing. So that was the first inkling I had that where I said, I think I'd like to do that someday. And so if we could fast forward about a decade, I, um, I became uh, a follower of Christ when I was in college. And then I wanted to become a missionary. And then in order to become a missionary, I had to serve at a church for two years before the Brazilian government would give me a visa. Uh, and so I found a church that would hire me for two years. It was in Miami, Florida. I moved to Miami and part of their job for any minister was to write an article in a church newsletter every week. So here I am, I'm, I'm brand new to ministry and uh, there's only three of us on the staff right? There's, there's just three of us and it's a church in downtown Miami. And the senior man minister says, okay, Max, you need to write an article each week. And I know you're not going to like doing this because no one does. <laughs> but I said to him, oh, really? I get to. And so I was, I got all excited because I thought I've always wanted to try my hand at writing, you know, other than, uh, you know, theme or, or term papers. And so I started writing these articles and, um, I started getting feedback from the church and I can remember a letter from a guy in California who got our newsletter and he said, these are really good. You ought to try to get them published. Hmm. So I thought, okay, I'll give that a go. Now we're in 1980, um, 81, 82. So way back a long time ago. And so uh, we moved to Brazil in 1983. And I the first year I was there in the spare time that I had, uh, when I wasn't taking Portuguese lessons, I would take those articles and carry, and I, I would say, I, I, and I began to try to compile them uh, into a manuscript. And so I succeeded. I got them all into a manuscript. Back then, I had to, to, to type them up, you know. I mean, this really sounds like pre-wheel and pre-fire days. No, I'm, I'm old enough. I mean, I, I did my entire undergrad, my first degree in history and political science on a manual typewriter. So... We're getting to be a rare species. Yeah, switched to computers in law school. So did you really? Yep, yep, did I did. Great. So I, you, you, I, I get it. I know what that's like. And I mean, if you made a mistake, it's either throw the piece of paper out or get the liquid paper. That's right. That's right. right? And so I got that manuscript uh, compiled, and I mailed it to um, uh, uh, fifteen publishers simultaneously. Uh, I think the better protocol they tell me now is you're supposed to mail them out one at a time, but I didn't know that. I just mailed a batch of them out from Brazil. And I began getting letters back from, back then they were called Word Publishing, Tyndale House, Multnomah, uh, uh, Crossway, uh, HarperCollins. And I began getting rejection, 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 rejection. But Carrie, it didn't bother me because... Uh, 
I didn't have any expectations. I thought, you know, I gave it a go. Well, all of a sudden I get an acceptance. I've got it hanging on my wall. I can show it to you. It's, it's really? an acceptance letter. It's dated. Um, oh, let me look. Yeah, yeah. This is awesome. The, so many of you, while Max is pulling it off the wall, you get <laughs> discouraged. You get discouraged. Okay. So look at Here this. It Here it is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, January 29th, 1984. Uh-huh. From Tyndale House Publishers, uh, Wheaton, Illinois. Mr. Lakato, and it goes on to say, uh, at a recent publications committee, we voted happily to accept your manuscript. Wow. So there it was, my first acceptance. Um, signed Wendell Hawley, Vice President, Editor-in-Chief. And I was so excited. I was so excited. Yeah. I thrilled. And, uh, and so they did. They published this little book called On the Anvil. And um, it's still in press. It's still in print. It's not sold a lot. It, it's it's not that great of a book, to be honest. But uh, but it got me started. And so that's boy, I gave you a long answer to very simple. No, I love it. I mean, there, there's no problem with that at all. How did you said the rejection letters didn't bother you? Like truthfully, really, they did not. I mean, yeah. honestly, I, I didn't have any expectations. Uh, I was in Brazil, remember, I was a missionary, yeah. and, and so I wasn't dependent upon writing for any income, you know, uh, I wasn't expecting to make money writing books. Uh, I didn't have, I had had two or three people say to me, oh, don't try writing, it's too hard, nobody ever gets, so I, I had my low expectations, and uh, when that book got published, I sensed a blessing from our Heavenly Father. I was hmm. I don't want to sound over spiritual here, but I but I really sensed that, hey, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And so I began uh already had another idea for the next book. And I wrote that. Then I had another idea for the next book and the next book. And and then they they just they just seemed to the ideas seemed to come as fast as I could write them. And uh, the next two or three books really did do do better, and that's when I I thought, okay, I, I, my calling is is really to to write books and to and to pastor, and so that's when we left Brazil in 1988, and uh, I found this church in San Antonio, Texas, and I've I've been here ever since. <laughs> that's something. Um, did you keep the rejection letters? I do. I do. Ah, I you do. got them in a file, a do you? Question. What a great question. Yeah, uh-huh. in fact, in fact, uh, it's funny because really my primary publisher for most, nearly all of these books, um, is they're currently called Harper Collins Christian Publishing. Yes. But I've worked with them over so many years, you know, thirty years. They've gone through several name changes. Back then, they were called Word Publishing. Does that yep. name ring a bell with you? No, I remember that. Yeah. Okay. I have well, the Word I, I, Biblical Commentary series. I yeah, don't know whether exactly. they're Yeah, that's a good series, man. The one yeah. on John? Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, they did reject the manuscript. I mean, <laughs> hands down. I don't even think they looked at it. And so I've got that letter, and I've, I've been prone to show it to them a time or two. <laughs> I, take, hey, I made remember, a copy Remember of this it, moment, I, guys? Yeah. yeah I, I made a copy of it and sent it to them, and it's hanging now. In in the hallway of the publishing company, and and so it's it's a reminder to be careful. <laughs> I didn't mean to poke fun at him, uh, but uh, but yeah, I've kept all those letters. Oh, that's great! You know, I, I think people should do that. I I, I had uh, I'm applying for something right now, and I had to go through all my old files, and like I found 
my first sermon. I found employment referral letters from like the 1980s and when I was a teenager and all that stuff that was just, it's really fascinating. And you look back, um, I, and, and again, I mean, Esther Federkevich, who you may know, she's a literary agent. Esther said C.S. Lewis got rejected like a ridiculous amount of time. She mm-hmm. named it in the hundreds. Uh, there's that yeah. famous thing on the internet where I think RSO or RKO Records told you two that they really didn't have any talent. And, you know, all, the, all those, like, it is really a story of just wanting to do it, right? And, and so you did that. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. How do you write that prolifically? I mean, you, it's not like you have a church of 40 people. You have a very large church, you're multi-site, you've got an international ministry, you do all kinds of media. What, how do you write that prolifically? My mind goes a lot of different directions, but I, I, I really do think it's my call. So I, yeah. I, I, I really do. And, uh, you know, I have a friend who's a, who's a cardiac, uh, cardiac surgeon. And uh, we play golf, and I, I say, how do you, how do you uh, perform heart surgery, two or three times a week? He do, even does transplants, and he says it's just what I do. It's just what I do. <laughs> and, and 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 really, Carrie, uh, I think that's kind of my best answer on a question mm-hmm. like that. Now, now, there's some practical things that I do, but it's just what I do. It's it's I know how to write books, and and I've done enough of them through the years that I have a a routine. I take my, um, I get an idea and I, and I try to condense it down to a phrase or two, a promise or two. Uh, I try to determine what, what the chapter flow is going to be. Uh, I, and, and, uh, I also, I'll, I'll usually preach a sermon series, uh, based on that particular idea and knowing that it'll eventually become a book. And so I have all of these things that I can do that hone it and, and, and all, um, but it, but it, but it truly is just kind of the thing that I do. I, I'm, I'm a, I mentioned to you before we began the interview that that as of the last, as of three weeks ago, I'm semi-retired, and yeah. that just means that I'm not in charge of the staff anymore. Right. And so I have a little more spare time, and uh, well, probably a lot of spare time. <laughs> and, and also, I'm preaching about half as much as I was. So instead of you know 46 weeks, I'm preaching 20 weeks, starting in. 2019. Uh, and so I, uh, as I transitioned into that season, uh, I, I never ever considered that I would not keep writing. Right. I was very happy to not have to lead the staff. And I just think that's a difference. Uh, I, I mean, I, there are those, you may be one of them. I know some godly guys who say, I got to lead somebody. I've mm-hmm. got to head up something. It's just what I do. I've got to head up something. I'm so, I, I get how it works so much. I, I'd be a waste of my time. That's not me. But I do need to write something. I, I need to be a writer. And so uh, I, I, I'm sorry to be kind of so philosophical on it. I could, No, I think, I think that's a good place to start because, you know, I talk to, as you do, a lot of young leaders. And sometimes the question is, how do you build a platform? And I'm not sure that's the right question. I think I think there's a labor of love. You and I were talking about podcasting uh, before we got going. And, you know, why, why did I want to podcast? It's because I was having incredible conversations with leaders, uh, you know, in green rooms and over lunch and dinner and breakfast and at airports. And I would walk away going, oh, my goodness, like, why couldn't everyone have heard this? Or 
Why didn't I record this? And now I get to have this and I get to learn, like, in, I would do this if everybody stopped listening. And there it is. No, there you it know, is. there it is. See, there's your call. You yeah. would do it. You would do it if, if nobody uh, listened. Um, and so, so your call, Carrie, is not only did you get excited about this, but you could see it. You could see it began to come. It began to take shape in your mind. Now, it, it, it probably took shape relatively easily to the point where yeah. you said, well, yeah, anybody could do something like this. And my response. Well, that's to you, what I was telling you. Anybody could yeah. do something like this, right? Yeah. And see, the truth is the answer is no, they can't. <laughs> you know, my, my thought is, well, anybody can write books. You know, and and ninety percent of the people look at me and say you're crazy. You're crazy. Right. Not anybody can. Somebody else might say anybody can do heart surgery. Well, no, they can't. <laughs> no, but he, no. But he is. So, this is so much his call that he says, "Well, yeah. I mean, I did. I went to medical school, and yeah, residency was hard. But but he kind of downplays it. And I think when you're called, when when you know your call, and you're committed to it, it really does have a sense of yeah, I could be, yeah, yeah, I could, I could direct this hospital. I can be the president of this organization. It's, it's hard. It's got its challenges, but hey, it's a juice too. It's a, it's a rush. Yeah. And and so, I've, I've, I tell people a lot when it comes to writing. Everybody's got a book in. I really think mm. they do. Everybody's got a book. We've all got a story. Not very many of us are called to write forty books, <laughs> or, or, or you know, or a hundred books. Yeah. Uh, but but in the fact that we're not is okay, uh, and that's just the way God God wired us. So you think everybody has a book in them? I, I think so. I do. Yeah, tell me more uh, about that. I I, I think that Kerry uh, has a unique story in his life that would help others to know uh, uh, God has done something in your life and 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 uh, in your past, in your history, in your family, uh, the circumstances of your life that is is absolutely worth capturing uh, on paper. It, it would certainly bless a few hundred people, might bless a few thousand people, some it'll bless tens of thousands, and then a few it'll bless hundreds of thousands, you know. Mm-hmm. But everybody's got a story that will bless a few hundred people. And, and, and so whenever somebody says, I'd like to write a book, I say, good, go for it. You know, yeah. give it a go. It's worth it. If nothing else, for your own kids. Right, grand, right. You know. But but most people will have a few hundred people who will really benefit from the book. And so, yeah, I, I think everybody's got a story in them. Can you walk us through some of the disciplines and routines that you have? Like when you, you're probably always writing, I mean, 40 books over, you're, you're probably never not writing. You might take a break for a few months or something. But when you, so you've given us an idea of the structure, you get the big idea, bring it down to a few sentences. But what does the rhythm of a day of writing look like? I would just love to know, like you morning, afternoon, do you, what do you do? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so again, to give it context, I come up with the big idea for the book. My new book is called Unshakable Hope. And um, I've learned through the years to try to give people a certain promise, a promise. I'm, that's, that's my style is to encourage people. And so I want to, to give them a promise. Last year's book was Anxious for Nothing. So there's my promise that you can live a life in which you're dealing better with anxiety. Okay, so there's my big idea. Uh, and so then I tried to come up with the structure for that. Uh, for Unshakable Hope, 
I said, you know, we can find hope if we build our lives on God's promises instead of life's pain and problems. So there's my takeaway sentence. Build your life on the promises of God instead of the problems and pain of life. Uh, anxious for nothing, it was, uh, it was built around the, the passage in Philippians 4 where Paul, Paul said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition. Let your requests be made known to God. So my outline for unshakable hope was, I'm going to take a, a, a dozen promises and show people how you build a life on promises. My outline for anxious for nothing was Philippians 4, verses 4 through, I think it's 8. And so I took phrase by phrase, rejoice, beginning with rejoice in the Lord, and then ending up with meditate on these things. So in both cases, I have a working uh, structure, an outline. Here are my big ideas. And so I, I put that together. And then I go back and I begin taking each of those chapters and, and, and creating either a sermon or a chapter for each one. And a writing and studying day for me begins, point one is reading everything I can find on that passage. I want to read everything I can find. And so if I'm doing a book on Philippians 4, by the end of the day, I've probably spent a couple of hundred dollars on new on commentaries, you commentaries, know, right. Dig you know, I, if there's a new commentary out, I want to look and see what so-and-so said. Uh, I'll buy, uh, uh, Amazon likes me. I mean, I'll go online and I'll just say, you know, best books on anxiety. And so I'll have a case of books then they'll arrive at my office and, and I'll just start reading through them. I want to read. So you're everything. a researcher, you research. Yeah. I am. I'm a researcher. I do. And, and that wasn't always, but I think a day in this day and age, people appreciate if I've done a little bit of spade work for them. Once then, uh, I've, I've kind of got all of that information that I feel like I can absorb in my head. Then I start digging in and I will write um, for about six hours, six hours. Oh, wow. It's about as far as I can go a day. And then I start getting crazy. <laughs> so I'll write on uh, Mondays and on Wednesdays for sure. And sometimes on Thursdays. And by the end of the week, I will have finished the chapter. And so I don't want to spend too much time on it uh, because I don't, I, I don't want to get, I, I want to finish the whole manuscript and then I'll go back. So, so if it's a 12 chapter book, I'll work, I'll do, go through that process for 12 weeks and I'll write a chapter a week. And then I'll go back and spend another week on each chapter. Okay. And then I go back and do it again. And it takes me about nine months, all in all, to, to write a book, sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little less. And I'll do the writing and the rewriting phase uh, quite often. At some point, I send it to my editor. I've had the same editor for 30 years. Hmm. I'll send it to her. She'll work it through for two weeks. And then the hardest day of my year is when I get the manuscript back from her the first time. Because then I know if I am going to uh, go into a cave and never come out alive again, or if I've, uh, there have been occasions, she's prefaced her response letter by saying, this one's going to need a lot of work, Max. And I mm. just groan inside. Then there's times she said, boy, you got it. It's almost there, Max. That's the greatest thing I can read, you know? And so then I'll work on it for two weeks. Then I'll send it to her and she'll work on it for a week. Then she sends it to me and I'll work it on the week. And then she flies here as she comes to San Antonio from Portland. And uh, my publisher comes from Nashville. My uh, editorial assistant in, in San Antonio uh, clears her schedule. And the four of us meet uh, for a week. And we read the manuscript out loud in a room, sitting in a room. 
really? reading Never heard of that. out loud uh, until we're all at peace with it. And then my, my editor, who comes out of a Quaker background, says that when she was growing up, they would conclude the service at a Quaker church by saying, are all hearts clear? And so she will read, we'll read the chapter and finally she'll say, okay, are all hearts clear? It's kind of a neat thing. And then once we all say yes, then we move on to the next chapter. So that'll take us a week. And at the end of that week, we're finished with it. And then, I, then I'm done. And I'll leave it in the hands of my editorial assistant to double check all the footnotes. It'll go then to a copy editor who will spend two or three weeks on it. And I'll look at it one more time when she uh, raises any red flags or concerns. And then, uh, then we're finished. Quite a process. My Quite goodness. Process. Yeah, it's involved. As I begin explaining it, it's pretty involved. I've never heard of an author who sits down with their inner circle, their kitchen cabinet, and actually reads a manuscript out loud with everyone in the room. Is that something, how did you come up with that? What a great question, Carrie. That is a great question. I'm trying to recall when we first began that. We began that back in the mid-90s. Uh-huh. I had a book. Uh, I, I think this is right. I had a book that uh, called "He Chose the Nails" that came out in the mid nineties. I remember and that one. The the uh, the lead line from Liz's letter, my editor's letter, was "This one's going to need a lot of work." And she said, <laughs> "So your nightmare letter." <laughs> I just kind of groaned, and and I think that's when she said, "What if I come to San Antonio and we sit down and work this through together?" And so that that's how it started. And we did find that reading it out loud, we could hear things that we'd missed before. And uh, so, so we have four people hearing it at one time. And I hear quite a bit that I missed up until that point. And so we've all got a copy of the manuscript on our lap. We've all got red pens. We're all underlining things, marking things. And then after we've read the chapter, then we're all weighing in on it and saying, oh, boy, that paragraph was too slow. Uh, Max, can you rework this phrase? Or that didn't work. Oh, oh boy, we've had that. Uh, we've had that. I don't know. Verb four times in the last four chapters is starting to pop up too much. You know, just that kind yeah. of spit polish that 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 we give, it. and uh, and so that that that's what we do. No, that's a that's really helpful to know. And I mean, everybody's got to design their own process. I was just curious. I've never known anyone to do that. And it's funny because. Uh, I think a lot of people, I think this thought even went through my head after 40 books, you know, you begin to wonder, well, uh, is it just transcribing a sermon series and you have a ghostwriter who puts it all together? But no, you are del like personally involved down to the punctuation, right? Yeah, Carrie, those are fighting words for me. I've right. got <laughs> go I there, go there. I want to hear more. Back and he said, now you must, all preachers have ghostwriters. And boy, I felt an anger come up inside of me. I'll just acknowledge that. I'll confess it. And I want, because I know how hard I work. I mean, yeah. I really work hard on these things. And I said, I have never used a ghostwriter in my life. I, I just felt the insurgence of anger at him. But, but you know, uh, we, I, I try to take it pretty seriously. And uh, for a lot, I really do like words. I really do. I love the turn of the phrase. But I do think that people are giving you a lot if they sit down with your book. I mean, they're giving yeah. you three or four hours of their life. Wow. I mean, what a, 
what a kind thing to do. So I owe them the, the, the uh, respect of taking it real serious. That's a good perspective. What, because um, you preach, well, until very, very recently, you preach 46 times a year. You gave us a number. Uh, you've written books. In terms of the interplay between speaking and writing, um, what are you learning or what have you learned there? Because has, has writing made you a better preacher? Has preaching made you a better writer? How do those two play off in your life? Because that's like a big chunk of your life, right? Both of those. What a great question. Carrie, where do you get these great questions? I don't know. Sorry, they're not on the page. I'm just curious. This is why I do this, man. This is the most interesting thing to me. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think the answer is yes and yes. I think writing yeah. makes me a better preacher, and preaching makes me a better writer. I think writing makes me a more precise preacher, hmm. makes me a more precise preacher, because I... um I stick to the manuscript pretty closely. I don't ramble. Right. Uh, I uh, I try to. It's sometimes difficult to really work a nice turn of the phrase or poetry in a sermon. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so much easier yeah. to do on a page. But still, I give it a, an attempt. I, I try to. Uh, and it, and so knowing that I'm I'm going to eventually take this sermon, and it will in all likelihood be a chapter in a book, forces me to go ahead and and go an extra generation or two with that sermon while I'm working on it. Uh, And even in the green room before I go out to preach, I'm sitting there with an open manuscript of the sermon, and I'm saying, okay, maybe I can cut that sentence or cut that phrase. And so I will. I'll I'll do even edits right up until the last minute. And then when I... uh, when I am working on turning that sermon into a chapter for a book, I will listen to the audio version of the sermon. I'll listen to the sermon uh, because inevitably uh, there is a phrase or two that popped in out of nowhere. Just as I'm up there talking yeah. and, 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 and it, it uh, I see you nodding through the Skype. This happened to you too. You know, you oh, just, gosh. It, I'm a verbal processor and sometimes I don't know what I think until I say it. There you go. There you go. And you see people responding and nodding their head. And so you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to add another layer. I'm going to say it again. You know, it's, it's not just that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus conquered death. It's not just that Jesus conquered death. He destroyed the devil. And I get on one of those, uh, you know, good things that I think are helpful in an audio setting. And sometimes that works well in a manuscript. And so I'll listen to it and I'll say, okay, yeah, I could, I could make that work. And I'll say, oh, no, it worked okay, maybe in the sermon. Or sometimes I'll hear things just go flat, even as I'm preaching. I say, "Well, that didn't work," and so I'll know not to put that in the manuscript. Yeah. Do you? How has your congregation responded to your writing over the years? I mean, obviously, every preacher listening is like, "Yeah, there's pretty much a direct cause and effect in terms of you get mail on Monday or you know conversations in the lobby." about what you preached, but I mean, that's a lot of books. And, you know, I haven't written, really, I've written three, well, two leadership books, a parenting book, and then uh, didn't see it coming, which is the most general release of them all. So our congregation... That's a great time. Thank you. I will uh, will accept that. I'll receive that. Yeah, we debated long and hard over that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting, but do you think... 
that they own more of their faith because they've been able to see longer versions of the mess. Like it's a bit of an interplay, like series will stick and ideas will stick because some of them are reading the book as well. What do you, what are you learning uh, about being a writer author? Mike, Mark Batterson does the same thing. Craig Rochelle's written a lot of books. Andy's written some, you know, so what are you learning about that? Yeah, I, I think um, the church having, for example, here's the unshakable hope book, right? And yeah. so I preached this series last year at the church. And so now the book is available in our bookstore. And so okay. people are telling me, hey, I was so excited to see the book come out because I love the sermon series. There's probably some people who are thinking I could care less about the book because I didn't like the sermon series, but they don't <laughs> tell me that. <laughs> That's right. Mercifully. So this, gives, yeah. this gives a chance to reinforce uh, to reinforce the message. Just today I was signing uh, a copy of this book that I'm sending to a guy who's in prison, but it was mm. a sermon series called You'll Get Through This, uh, based on the life of Joseph, the Old Testament character. You'll get through this. And this phrase worked its way, I really think, into the vernacular of our church. You'll get through this. You'll get mm. through this. It's a promise, you know, and and, and it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be quick, but you'll get through this. And I have people say that to me quite often, you know, that that sermon series, Max, I, I, I'm so glad when the book came out because I needed to have a chance to go back and revisit all of those sermons. What happened to me, uh, Carrie, when I came to this church in 1988, I already had, the, already had three books published and I had a fourth one in the can. And so I talked to our church leadership and I said, uh, I said, you need to, we need to understand going in that I'm a writer and, and uh, I, I, that is my other thing uh, rather in, other than preaching and leading the church. Uh, some, some pastors counsel, that's their other thing. Uh, some pastors do leadership development uh, like you and, and really have a passion for that. And, and so I, I said to the elders, I said, you know, if, if you're okay with this, I'm not going to be doing that much hospital visitation or counseling, not because I don't like it, uh, but because I need, I need the time to write. So we had an agreement going in, and it's been a happy relationship uh, all these years. Yeah. Well, and again, if you're, if you're good at what else you do, whatever that happens to be, it probably has a net benefit. I was a little bit nervous with the release of Didn't See It Coming, and it really helped that I'm not the lead pastor anymore. But Jeff Brody said, okay, Tony and I were able to donate some books that we could give away, and it turned out to be the highest attended Sunday for the church. And I said to Jeff Brody, my successor after that, I said, man, this was a win all the way around. We had the most number of first-time guests ever, the highest physical attendance ever outside of Christmas and Easter and uh, I said, I felt like I was able to, because I wouldn't, if I was a lead pastor, I might not have done that, right? Yeah. Because it feels yeah. like conflict. Absolutely. But, you know, it was, it was really exciting for me to be able to share a message that I had worked really hard on, harder than any normal sermon series that didn't go into a book, uh, just because they tend to come and go pretty quick. And, yeah. uh, and the church, just it was wins all the way around. And, and so I think you're right. If... If the thing that you're working on, if it's like, you know, I'm going to do crafts and sell them on the internet, well, that's not necessarily related, but I'm sure your church has, has done well as a result. I want to talk to you about time management, because uh, I, I said to you earlier, I started just by thanking you, because we hadn't really met prior to this conversation, but you had sent me 
uh, a really kind note. And, you know, people in your position, to some extent, people in my position, I get books almost every day shipped to me by publishers and authors and self-published people. But here I get this note from Max Lucado, and it's an early review copy of your book. Would you consider endorsing it signed by you? And it's personal. And I'm like, I just about had a heart attack, fell over. I didn't even know you knew who I was. And, uh, you know, so it was really, really gracious. And then again, last week before this interview, I get the final copy of the book and a handwritten note inscribed personally to me. How do you make the time leading what you lead, doing what you do to be that personal with people? You know, I am. Um, I, I, my golf game is not very good. <laughs> that is a great answer. <laughs> I really do love playing golf, but it does take a lot of time. You know, I, 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 I've got a great executive pastor and he's just brilliant. And he, and, and again, I semi retired now. So my do have less, I don't have anybody reporting to me. And, and so that's a really a delight. Um, but he he does he has done, and is my dearest friend. And and uh, his name is Steve Green, and mm-hmm. and he just frees me up. He's a blessing. He's a he's an amazing blessing for me. Um, I uh, I don't I don't travel much, Carrie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People assume that I'm always on the road, and I'm really not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't travel much, I, 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 and that frees up a lot of time. I understand some people do travel, and that's their call. I've, I've got great friends who every weekend are at a different seminar or church, and God bless them. God bless them. Uh, I, I feel like I do better if I'm in my office, uh, either writing or somehow focused on the local church or, or working on, like what you just said, the, the, mm. the, the things surrounding publishing, like requesting endorsements and, uh, and uh, doing interviews and so forth. And so may, maybe that's my best answer to that question. I've got a good team. Uh, I, 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 think, I think that uh, I, don't, I don't get on the road much. I say that and say I've got my bag packed right here. I'm going yeah. to have to But not very often. But yeah, you don't. Was that a, a conscious decision? I mean, I'm sure you get speaking requests every single day. I mean, yeah. I can't imagine there's a week that goes by yeah. where somebody doesn't ask you to do something on the road. And, and, and I, 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 I love speaking. I really do. Yeah. The reason I'm traveling is because a good friend has a, has a ministry and they're doing a fundraising banquet and he's just a good friend. So if yeah. it's a relationship issue, if it's a, a relationship or it's a cause that I feel strongly about, uh, or if it's a long time, uh, relationship with a church, then those are usually my criteria for speaking. Uh, but I turn most just about everything down, and and uh, I, I just can't. It takes so long to get to places. It does. Uh, I live so far. You know, if I lived in central United States or even Toronto, where you are, it'd probably be easier. But I'm forever. You're it a connecting me, flight anywhere, right? That's right. It takes me forever to get to Dallas or Houston, and then I have to fly somewhere. No, it. it and so I, I don't. Uh, and maybe that's my best answer to that question. I. I no, say no fair. to a lot of good things, so I can try to say yes to some of the more important things. How have you managed the tension over decades now, multiple decades, between leading the church 
and carving because I mean a lot of a lot of pastors, a lot of leaders. I mean, we have business leaders, so a lot of CEOs struggle with. Gosh, I'm in meetings all day. I I got you know fires that I'm fighting on a regular basis, and pastors have it. And so a CEO would say, I don't have any strategic planning time. A pastor would say, I squeezed my message out, or and any regular listener knows how I feel about it. I downloaded this one. Um, not a great idea in my books, but you know, it's hard to find writing time no matter what you do, but you've led a, a very large, growing, multi-site church uh, and, and a, a strong team while carving out, from what you said, sounds like three days a week to write. So walk us through what are some of the trade-offs there. Okay. And, and, and to be clear, um, I was senior minister uh, leading the church for 20 years. And after 20 years, I kind of cried uncle. And I, I, um, we hired uh, a new senior pastor, and I became teaching pastor. And I split the teaching with Randy Frazee, a great guy. Randy came in, 19, in about, about nine years ago. And then about a year and a half ago, he felt called to move to Kansas. And so I stepped back in as senior minister. So just to be, just to be a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did it for 20 years and then I was teaching pastor for about nine years. And now for the last 18 months, I've been back in the role of senior pastor. Uh, and so, uh, I've, I've kind of felt both worlds. Uh, in the last 18 months, I've really felt the stress or the pressure of, of, uh, what you were describing. Of yeah. not very much time in the day to get done what I wanted to get done. And the reason is because what we were just discussing, and that is transitioning our, our multi-sites into independent churches. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you can imagine, Carrie, as one who is, leads a church and has been in the leadership role of a church, that's a really big decision. Yeah. It's, it, it involves assets. It involves leadership. I, I mean, individuals. It involves really a change in strategy. And, and so we had to that was our big question when I stepped back in. Are we going to continue being multi-sites? Or are we going to transition into a family of independent churches? And so I really felt the stress during these last 18 months of not enough time in the day to work on my sermons and attend all of these meetings. But I, I, I guess I might say that I just asked the Lord to help me, just to <laughs> bless me. Because I knew, I knew it was a season, Carrie. I couldn't keep doing that forever. I knew it was a season. Now, if it was not a season, if I was 40 and not 64, okay, yeah. if I was 40 and I was saying, uh, okay, this is my call for the next uh, 20, 25 years, we're going we're gonna to lead this large church, we're going to preach, uh, then I would make sure to staff up around me and, right. and be able to help uh, manage all this. And, and that's what I did after a few months into the last stretch, I hired this Steve Green came on as our executive mm-hmm. minister, and he gave me has given me a lot of help. Yeah, you know, like my answers to you today are meandering, and that's no, not, that's really good. No, it's helpful and it's honest. And eventually, something has to give, and you have to structure around it. Because I think you're right. If you're if you're 18, you know, months into this, and you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, you're not going to preach well. You're not going to live well. Uh, yeah. What do you do for relaxation? What do you do just to unplug and enjoy? Yeah, I, 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 um, we have a lake house and, mm. um, and, and my, it's about 90 minutes from, we can be from our door to the lake house in about 90 minutes. And so we go up there, uh, and, uh, and, and when we're up there, we just really do unplug 
It's right on the water, and we thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, I do love to play golf. I was teasing yeah. about that. But I, <laughs> you know, um, back when I was, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 64 now. When I was 40, I went through a season of insomnia, Carrie, mm-hmm. uh, due, to, due to stress, due to stress. And I actually had to go to a doctor to, to help me. And not only did he, uh, he, he give me some, uh, uh, my first introduction to sleep, to sleeping pills to help me kind of get my rhythm back. But he he encouraged me. He said, you need an activity that you can really pour yourself into that has no consequences as if you, that if you blow it, that's okay. And he said, do you have anything like that? And I said, no, everything I do is, 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 has consequences. The book needs to be a good book. Needs to be a good sermon. The staff needs to be healthy. The meetings need to go well. So everything has consequences. My kids were small. I want to do a good job. So he said, you need something that has no, if you blow it, there's no consequences. And so I I took up golf. (laughs) Isn't, you know what? I've never heard it phrased that way. And that is brilliant. It really is. That was, this is a good doctor, whoever told you that. Many of us who are leaders or or who are in charge of an organization, we're achievers. We like to achieve Mm -hmm. something. And so, uh, and so I poured myself into golf and I would, this is sounding corny. I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but I would set myself goals. You know, I'm going to shoot a, uh, I'm going to break a hundred <laughs> by the end of the summer. Right. And I didn't, I didn't, but the fact that I did not, it was okay. So I could pour myself into something and then I work really hard on it and think about it, have something fun to think about, watch on television, but uh, it, it had no bad consequence if I didn't do well. There's a- crazy number of leaders in ministry and in the business world who do not have a hobby, who, who do not have anything like that. And it's interesting, you know, I had a bunch of light bulbs go off in my mind, Max, when you said that. And that's what cycling has become to me, because I live in the country, an hour yeah. north of Toronto, lots and lots of friends who cycle who are in better shape than me. And there was pressure when I started cycling to become competitive with them and enter races. And my spirit just like, I love those guys and they're my friends and I'll have dinner with them. But I'm like, no, cycling is me alone, not in a group. There's no Peloton. Uh, The only person I'm competing against is myself because I guess I intuitively knew that I needed a pressure release valve. And if if I turned that into something competitive, it would not be a release for me. So my plan when we're done, I have another webinar later today, is just an hour long ride. And the only person I'm competing against is me and if it doesn't go well, oh well. Oh well. That's exactly what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. That that is really good advice for it's leaders. Restorative. What do you do in the time? Do you have a, a, a stationary bike, or do you what? How do in you the winter that? time, yeah, I don't do as good a job as I could. I think I'm gonna um, probably get a, a smart trainer this winter, so you can have like a whole virtual world. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try that because. I'm really good in the summer, not so good in the winter. So, uh, yeah, that's what I, I got to do. And you're I in love, San Antonio. I biking so you- too. Yeah, I really love biking too. And we have the great, uh, great weather. So that, that, that yeah, you can do helps. that year round. I can yeah. go about six months. I mean, I can go till November. I yeah. got the gear. Yeah. But when the snow hits, I have friends who are hardcore and they cycle all winter. It's like minus good. 20 out and they're out there. And I'm like, good for you. I'm inside. Yeah, but I think I think that's good uh, for you. And you know, you've run the race well, and here you are, as you say, at sixty four, and you got a lot of life and, and passion. Are you going to keep writing? 
Like even in yes. your retirement, yeah. semi-retirement? Yeah. 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 I, I'm, I'm going to keep writing. I changed the rhythm of it up just a little bit. Um, I, I uh, forever have done book deals with, with publishers where I would sign a three book deal or a five book deal, having no clue what those books would be. You know, just right. knowing over the next three to five, three to four or five years, I'll write, I'll, some idea will come. And I, I'm not going to do that anymore. Now I want to write the book and, uh, and see if I think it's really uh, worth somebody reading and publishing uh, and then present it to the publisher. And that, hmm. what that does for me, Carrie, it, it just lifts the one level of stress off of me yeah. because if I've already made a promise that I'm going to write you a book, but I don't know what that book is, then I feel like, okay, I got to do it. I got to do it. I'm a, I, think, I, I think I'd just rather say, okay, I, I'd rather not have that level of stress. But I'll keep writing and we'll just see if I generate anything that's worth it. It's worth it. You, know. you ever get writer's block? I never have. <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to say that because I know so many do, but I, I just haven't. And so thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've always been able. Uh, sometimes things come more slowly than others. Uh, but, uh, but no, I've, I've always had uh, a good rhythm, a good, good flow when it comes to writing. Yeah. And uh, do you, do you uh, catalog your ideas? Like, do you, uh, do you have like five things you think could be a book at some point down the road that you've got tucked in a notebook or Evernote or on your phone? Well, boy, you're asking the greatest questions. It's like you've been inside my head, you know. <laughs> um, my, my idea uh, file is actually inside my Bible, uh, oh, wow. on the fly leaf of my Bible. Yeah, I'll scribble ideas there, and I've got quite a few that never became books. And then I've got some, I'll, I'll read that list, and I've kept it going now for 20 years. And, and those, there's a book, you know, that, that I can remember one day uh, thinking, I'd like to write a book on John 3.16, the greatest verse in the Bible. And I'm just going to call the book 3.16, the number, you know, 3.16. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure enough, I wrote that book and I was looking in my Bible the other day and I saw that 3.16. And it's just kind of brought me a happy feeling, you know, to, oh, good. Look at that. That's, I remember coming up with that idea. But I've got quite a few there that'll never become books. They felt good when I felt like potential ideas when I wrote it down, but they don't stand the test of time. That's another thing about writing, and that is the importance of rewriting, hmm. you know, writing a chapter and then coming back and rewriting it because it always feels good the first day, but the second day you come and read it, it's not as good. Yeah. And so you rewrite it and then you come back the next day and say it's still not quite there. And that's just the nature. I compare it to painting a, a, a fence. You put the first coat on, you come back a few hours later and realize it's been absorbed into the wood. Oh, right. it needs another coat. You come back and put it on, and then it's been absorbed. There's something about writing that there's an absorption process that it, you just have to keep coming back and keep coming back. And I don't know if it's true or not, but I read in Reader's Digest that Ernest Hemingway rewrote the old man in the sea over 300 times. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I, I, uh, that was his secret. He said, the secret to writing is rewriting. Jordan Peterson, who's got quite a platform these days, said in his first book, he's only written two maps of meaning, that he looked at every sentence and rewrote it in the book. And it's a long, dense book, 15 times. 
<laughs> and and the current one, 12 rule, Rules for Life, something like five, at least a minimum, every sentence was rewritten at least five times. I'm like, oh. wow, that's crazy. But yeah, that's an artist with his art, right? And there are things, I mean, if you're doing a sermon that's sort of here today and gone next week, you're moving on to something. That's but That's a great point. If you're doing if you're doing something that you hope is hallmark content, and that's yeah. something I think preachers can think more about because we we don't recycle content nearly enough. Uh, but if you're working on a mission vi- vision statement, value statement, those can take a long time. And I would encourage every leader to do exactly what Max did, whether that's in your Bible. For me, it's an Evernote. But I keep like working like blog ideas, book ideas. I've got sermon series. I've got about usually 18 months worth of sermon ideas in the hopper at any time. And some of them date back, like some of them that we'll do in 2019. Uh, I can look at my notes from 2013 and the idea first appeared there. And, you know, it stuck around. Okay, I've had that idea for five years. I think it's worth a series. Yeah. And then other times you think of something on Tuesday and you're ready to go in a month. So that's uh, weird how that goes. I'm kind of territorial uh, about mine too, because I don't want to tell anybody what they are because I'm afraid they're going to use them. <laughs> <laughs> I've got that's a great a, one for next year, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. No, no, no. <laughs> if I told you, I'd have to kill you, right? Uh, <laughs> hey, I'd love, you, I'd love you to talk about Unshakable Hope because it was really interesting. I think in the preface you say, we are in a, a really interesting time, very anxious time, and I know that's close to your heart. Um, tell us why you wrote this one. Well, all of what we've been discussing today really provides a good context for this, because since, uh, since I am a, a pastor, I'm engaged in uh, conversations with people in the church foyer or even on the, in the grocery store, I'll run into people, and uh, I... I, I Try to pay close attention to those because I, I think those conversations are one way to pick up on where people are. And a couple of years ago, I, I began to see, notice that many, many people, more people were talking about uh, the the lack of hope in their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have hope that they could find a job or I don't have any more hope that I can, our, our marriage is beyond repair. It just seemed like there was this sense of, we will never get uh, through these problems, and and, and pay, tried to pay close attention to that, and began thinking if I were to write a sermon series intended to give people hope, a way to develop hope, how would I approach it? And um, the idea surfaced. Really, it's an idea that I've had for a long time, and that's to do a sermon series on promises and uh, promises in the Bible, and and encourage people, equip people to discover promises, and to turn to those promises. And so that's what I did. And uh, I really enjoyed writing the sermon series. I really enjoyed writing the book. I was unaware there's over 7,000 promises in the Bible. Wow. And uh, and so I thought, well, I can't do a book that's 7,000 <laughs> chapters long. So I just, I just uh, for the sermon series, it was a long sermon series, which I don't really recommend, but it was 30 sermons. It was, it was pretty long. We typically do six or eight or 10 week series. Um, but I just did it because I wanted to take the church through the whole Bible, looking at promises to Adam and Eve, promises to Abraham, promises to, to Jacob, to Moses. So I wanted to look at it that way. And uh, uh, and so I took the best, what I thought were the best 12 
of those messages and, and turn those into the book. And those became the, the chapters for Unshakable Hope. Wow. Do you have a favorite book of all the books you've written? Yeah, I do. It's a children's book. You know, I've written quite a few children's books. Yeah. And, and there's one I wrote uh, back in 1993 uh, called You Are Special. And it's a, a story about wooden people who live in a, a little village uh, called Wemmicksville. Oh, we read and, that to our kids. Oh, you know you what? Read? I hadn't connected the dots. That that yeah. was a book that made me cry. And I well, I don't know if you wow. intentionally on there connected the dots because it's a story about dots and stars. It's right. a story about a little village where people, if you're a good person, you get a star. If you're a bad person, you get a dot. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps. Yeah, we read that to our kids over and over again when they were little. Yeah. Well, that little story uh, has, uh, I, I just... I just think there's a lot of, I loved writing that story. And here's a, a neat thing about that story. I wrote it because I was uh, uh, under obligation. I had told Crossway Publishing, in, in, they're out of Chicago. They, they said, could you write seven children's stories for us? I thought I was finished. I thought I had written seven. And they wrote me and said, you owe us one more. And I said, oh, man, it!" And not only that, you owe it this week. This week. Seriously? Yeah. So, oh man! So I just blocked out a, an afternoon, and I said, "What could, what could I do?" And I, you know, it was, it was it's a great illustration that God can use inspiration as well as obligation <laughs> to bring about something good. And so I did. I wrote that story, and we rewrote it a few times, cleaned it up, mailed it in, and it became "You Are Special." And that that book is all over the world; millions of copies are out there. And uh, I just, I just, that's my favorite. Uh, That's you know, awesome, could, and, and and it's not a religious book, you know. It's a very no. uh, just kind of a a metaphor of 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 life. Yeah. Hmm. That's good to know. How I I, I recently interviewed Dr. Gary Chapman, Five Love Languages, yeah. and one of my favorite stories is I met him in uh, January in Edmonton. Like I'm just standing there waiting for the bus. It's minus six hundred, whatever it is. <laughs> And uh, I've been there in January. <laughs> you've been there. In, you've been to Breakforth, haven't you? Yeah, that's the only yeah. reason to be in Edmonton in January. I've been to Winnipeg in January too. Oh wow! Well, Canada, thanks you. Winterpeg. Yeah, it is Winterpeg. Yeah, I don't no hate mail, please, guys. But um, <laughs> you know, I thought, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm. I'm. He's just mission driven. Like he's got nothing left to prove. And. You know, in the startup world, a lot of people, they, they hit success and they sell the company or, or whatever, but you want to write for the rest of your life. And I know it's your calling, but how have you, the question that I want to ask you is, because I saw this in Gary Chapman as well, how have you let this not affect you? Because when sometimes when people reach a certain level of success, and I'm sure your book sales are far beyond anything you ever dreamed would happen when you were in Brazil getting rejection letters... How does how does this not affect you in a way that you know you're like no I'm I'm going to keep doing this and keep helping people. Um, I, I think I've I think I know the uh, sinful nature that I have, and I almost hesitate to say that because people might think I'm being insincere or disingenuous. But I, I have I have I, I have struggles that uh, I, I wish a 60, a man in his 60s who's walked with Christ since he was 20, I, I wish I could say I didn't have him anymore. 
Mm. Uh, but I, but I do have issues and struggles and they, they remind me, uh, they remind me that I'm just, uh, you know, um, if we're not for the grace of God, I'd be, I'd be all screwed up. Yeah. Um, I have to, I have to put, uh, internet filters on everything I own mm. because I don't trust myself in a room with a, a laptop where I'm two clicks of a button away from pictures I shouldn't see. Uh, I have to travel with somebody. I have to have somebody traveling with me um, because I just don't like how I might be if I was untethered from somebody uh, who I know. I don't like being out in a place alone. It, it's, sometimes it's not always possible, but as much as possible. Um, and, and, and so, you know, uh, I tend to exaggerate sometimes. Even in a sermon, I'll be preaching away and I'll, I'll say something, and then after the sermon, I'll say, why did I say that? I get caught up in the emotion, uh, and I say things that are a stretch of, of what is actual. So, Carrie, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is I know the proclivities and tendencies that I have. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm really sad. I'm brokenhearted when I hear about a pastor who's had a moral failure but I've never struggled in being judgmental toward that person because I realize that it's a temptation uh, for all of us. And the Lord has protected me, but it's not because I'm strong. It's because mm-hmm. I have the thoughts. Every, every guy does. I have those thoughts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I have to battle those. I have to battle those. So I guess I say all that to say that um, it's pretty easy <laughs> for me to, to not get too caught up in the hype. Of it because I know uh, what, the daily battles and struggles that I face. So. Thank you. Thanks for being so honest. No. You have a lot of young leaders listening, tons in their 20s and 30s. Um, you give them some advice. If you're, yeah. you know, whether that's you look back on Max Lucado at 25 and you want to tell them something, or yeah. you, you build into a lot of young leaders too. So I'd love. For you just to, to talk to them for a minute. Okay. Um, I, I think the idea of succeeding at home first is a great mantra for leaders uh, to succeed at home first. Uh, there's a reason that in, in, in the listings of characteristics of, of good pastors that the Apostle Paul uh, would say he manages or she manages their household well. They manage their household well. And uh, I don't think there he's talking about getting the bills paid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think no. he's talking about, you know, if I were to talk to your kids, uh, you know, how would they say, what kind of pastor, what kind of spiritual leader are you? And so succeeding at home first matters. Um, I really think that, uh, that the investment that we make in loving our wife or loving our husband uh, pays such huge dividends. Huge dividends, Carrie. Uh, you know, like I say, I've been at the church here thirty years. Everybody knows my wife. Everybody knows our three daughters, and um, the fact that we love each other, and I love my wife, and she loves me, and and that she still goes to church here and hears me preach. <laughs> no, the fact that that the church sees us, I've I've kind of had a sense that that's the most effective sermon that uh, that I ever bring. You know. Yeah. Um, when people see me in the foyer and I'm holding my wife's hand, not because I'm supposed to, because that's just what we do. Um, that I, I would really tell young leaders, uh, 
guard your time. Put boundaries up so that you're never, um, never. <laughs> I, I like the Billy Graham rule. I mean, I know. I don't, I'm, don't be alone. I don't think it's an over exaggeration. I don't. Yeah. My wife and I agree. Yeah. And now it's the Mike Pence rule. You know, it's kind yeah. of been surfaced again. So, but don't be alone behind closed doors with a female who's not your spouse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Try not to travel with someone. Uh, if you're traveling with a female, try to bring somebody else. I mean, just do a few things to keep yourself from being in a position where, where you would stumble. And then invest yourself in the, in the lives of your kids. Uh, yeah. you, can't, you can't make every game. I get that. You can't make every recital. I get that. But make it the ex- exception, not the rule, if you're not there. Let's just try to be there. You know, Tim Kimmel, you know Tim Kimmel, I bet. And Tim I says, name, uh, young people, children spell uh, love with four letters. T-I-M-E. Yep. <laughs> T-I-M-E. Yeah. And just be there to put them into bed. And, and if the church is putting pressure on you, they're wanting more time, just tell them, I can't do it. I've got to love my kids. And so yeah. I, that would be my number one counsel. For Great counsel. Very, I don't, I don't know that there's anything else you need to say. And if you're really struggling with that, young leaders, read Andy Stanley's book. He changed the title. I think it's now called When Work and Family Collide. It used to be called Choosing to Cheat. Just Google that. You'll find it. Um, Max, what a gift this time together has been today. Thank you. Uh, it's been a joy getting to know you. We've talked for over an hour. It feels like 10 minutes. You just do such a great job. You wow. really do. I'm very, very grateful for you. You make it easy. And people are going to want to learn more, and they're going to want to find you online. So what's a good website that they can they can yeah, go to? Yeah, uh, we have maxlocato.com, yeah. just, just my name.com, and uh, everything's right there. Wonderful. Max, thank you. We'll do this again. Okay, my friend. All the very best, and hello to everyone in Canada. Thank you. You know, that was such a rich conversation. We had something like 90 minutes planned. I think we went over two hours just even talking offline. We had such a great time together. You can find everything we talked about in the show notes. Just head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 221. And guess what, guys? We have transcripts. We asked you, would it be a good idea to introduce transcripts? And I was shocked, like two, over two thirds, like I think 75% of you who answered that poll said yes. So there are transcripts to this episode and last week's, and the weeks before. So you can check that out uh, in the show notes. So just head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 221. Hey, next week we got a fresh episode dropping, and we are, I've been excited about this for a long time, we are sitting down with Patrick Lencioni. Patrick and, well, Patrick and I go way back to when we did this interview, but I have been reading his stuff literally for 15 years. And we get into some really fascinating territory, like why he said no to Steve Jobs. Like who says no to Steve Jobs? But chances are you may never have heard of Patrick Lencioni if he had said yes. Uh, How to motivate millennial workers and the qualities you want to look for when you're hiring and creating the ideal team. So here's an excerpt from next week's episode. On the one hand, on the most behavioral level, on the idealistic or, or behavior level, there's just humility. And, and understanding that when you get a leader who truly doesn't think they're important and is in service of others. And I know we, we throw servant leadership around and all this and humility and words like that. But I mean, when they really believe 
that they are no more important than the lowest level person in their organization. That is the thing. And, and, and pride hmm. is the root of all sin. It just is. Yes, it is. And so humility is the antidote. When you meet a leader who's humble, say, I don't really want to be famous. I don't really want people to treat me better. I really want to serve them and see good things come out because he died for us and it didn't make sense. And so why would we die to others? It doesn't make sense. And it's, that's what makes leadership so great. Yep, Patrick Lencioni next week here on the podcast. That's a pretty good reason to subscribe in my book. So if you haven't done that yet, it's absolutely free. And it's free because of our partners. Uh, make sure you go and check out remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. Save up to 34% annually on your healthcare payroll costs and also make it better for your employees. And go to pushpay.com and get your church into 2018, maximize mobile giving, and connect with your members all week long. So that's pushpay.com, remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. Uh, head on over there and uh, tell them I sent you. So thank you so much, guys. Uh, I hope this fall is going well for you. We have some fun stuff planned, a couple of extra episodes this month coming up, and we are gonna be focusing on church growth. That's gonna be a lot of fun. So if you wanna grow your church, you wanna get rid of artificial barriers, that's coming up on the podcast. And uh, also coming up, Levi Lusco, Adam Hamilton, Terry Smith, Pete Scazzaro, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.